You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Um, well, my name is Matt. If we haven't met before, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Liberty, good to have you uh, with us today. And as Anthony mentioned, we have reached the end this morning of our series on the life of Moses. Uh, Though we have primarily been in the book of Exodus uh, for this series, to close out, we're actually going to switch over to the book of Deuteronomy. So if you have Bibles, you can make your way to Deuteronomy 33 and 34, uh, page 177 of most of those black hardcover Bibles uh, is where you can, can find that text today. But as you're turning there, just so that you're not left completely hanging with how did Exodus end? How did we get to Deuteronomy? Uh, The book of Exodus closes with the presence of God filling the tabernacle. This tent that that God instructed his people to build and to place at the center of the camp. As we saw last week, uh, even after the golden calf, the horrific sin of the Israelites, they worshiped this golden calf. God though promised to stay with them that his presence would not be withdrawn from them. And so there's this climactic moment at the end of Exodus where the presence of God fills the tabernacle. God is with his people. He's going to continue on with them. The following books then, Leviticus and Numbers, give additional detail about God's law, about the sacrificial system. Uh, There's a census, actually two of them, of the people. It also gives uh, many more accounts of the 40 years of wandering through the desert. Uh, The people, as they wander through the desert, the various trials that they experience and the rebellion that they continue in and the victories even that that they experience there. The next book, which is Deuteronomy, closes out the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is the the name that we give these first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses. And Deuteronomy uh, literally means second law. As that name indicates, as the people are are now nearing the end of their 40 years of wandering in the desert, as they are preparing to enter into the promised land, Moses reviews the law of God with them a second time, calls them to follow again the law of God. So even though it would have been great to do our whole series in Exodus, uh, because we're focused on the life of Moses in this series, we need to skip ahead a little bit and actually close out at the end of Deuteronomy. Because in today's text, that's where we find a number of the lasts of Moses's life, the last of Moses's life. And we'll look at four today. His last address, last ascent, last assessment, and then finally a lasting assurance. And for each of those four, we're going to unpack, we're going to read as we go and then unpack a few verses from the book of Deuteronomy. But the thing that really ties all of this together is how the last of Moses's life anticipate the destiny of the people of God. If you've been with us in this series throughout the fall, you can start to to think with with all that God has done through Moses, with all that God's people have experienced just just during this one man's lifetime, where is it all going to go from here? As he reaches the end of his life, what happens next? And what we see is that Moses's lasts point to what is lasting. So let me pray for us and then And then we'll dive in. Father, Lord Jesus, our our King of kings and Lord of lords, as we're celebrating today, who have caused all of Scripture to be written for our learning, we ask now by your Spirit's power that you would grant us to hear and read and mark and learn and inwardly digest your word, that we may embrace 
and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. First, let's talk about Moses' last address. And let me just quickly set this up. At the end of Deuteronomy 32, chapter just before the one we're in today, God tells Moses that, that he's about to die. And he reminds Moses that he will not be able to, he'll see the promised land, he'll get to see it, but he will not be able to enter it. One of the, the many episodes we weren't able to cover in this series came in Numbers chapter 20. Uh, when the people in that moment were again without water in the wilderness, God told Moses to speak to a rock and to make water come out from it. But instead of speaking to the rock, Moses struck the rock with his staff twice. And as a consequence of that, he was not allowed to enter the promised land. Now, compared to all of Israel's sin and rebellion, that seems kind of like a minor offense, does it not? Like a golden calf worshiping a golden cow or striking a rock twice. The spies and the people of God refusing to enter into the promised land when God first said, go in, and they didn't. Or a moment of anger. One seems worse than the other. And lest we forget, why was Moses angry? It's because the people, once again, had turned on him. They had blamed him for their thirst. They had told him it would be better if, if he had just left them in Egypt. Nonetheless, Moses is responsible for his reaction. He disobeyed God. He failed to, to honor God, to uphold the the reliability, the trustworthiness of God in the sight of Israel. And as their leader, he's judged with greater strictness. And so Moses will not enter into the promised land. Fast forward then to today's text and the end of Moses' life, knowing that his death is near, Moses has a chance to think about his last words. What is he going to say in his last address to the people? In the 90s sitcom Seinfeld, uh, George Costanza's father, Frank, creates a new holiday that he calls Festivus. Anybody familiar with this uh, episode? Okay. Part of Festivus is what Frank Costanza calls the airing of grievances. And he says, I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about them. Okay? If I'm Moses, that's almost certainly what my last address of this group of people sounds like. Right? Well, you people have been a constant pain. Right? You made the last 40 years miserable. And then because I snapped at you that one time, I won't even get to experience the promised land. Thank you for nothing and goodbye. That's what my address would probably sound like. That's not at all, though, what Moses does. Instead, Moses' last address, which is the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 33, is one long blessing. I'd invite you to read the whole thing this week. For now, I just want to pick it up in verse 26. These are the very last recorded words of Moses. Deuteronomy 33, beginning in verse 26. There is none like God, O Jeshurun. It's, a, it's a, a, a term of endearment for the people of Israel. There is none like God, O Israel, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of, land of grain and wine whose heavens dropped down dew. Verse 29, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. 
Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. This is God's word. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. See, in spite of all of the pain that they've caused Moses, in spite of all of their sin and their rebellion against God, God is still their God. He is still their savior, their shield, and their sword. So in this last address, Moses is able to overlook all of the offenses, all the years of hardship, and all of the immense sorrow that he has to be feeling in this moment that he himself is not getting to enter into the land himself. He's able to overlook all of that and to speak words of blessing. Centuries later in, in Luke's gospel, we read Jesus teaching his disciples to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you, to do good to those who hate you. Deuteronomy 33 is Moses doing just that many years before. How is that possible? How is that possible? If you've been hated, if you've been abused, if you've been cursed by other people, you know this takes a massive amount of forbearance and forgiveness. In fact, the only way to even begin is to see others more through the lenses of their relationship with God than their relationship with you. The only way to begin is to see others more through the lenses of their relationship with God than their relationship with you. We instinctively define and categorize people by their relationship with us. Is this person a friend or an enemy? Is this person an ally or a foe? Is this person for me or is this person against me? And it's not that our relationship with that person is unimportant. It's just that their relationship with God is infinitely more so. In Moses' case, there's only one person that these people have offended more than Moses, and it's God. And it's God. And yet God, in his mercy, keeps putting his blessing on the people. He keeps binding himself to them in his covenant, steadfast love. And so as crazy as it seems, blessing the people in this moment, using his last address to bless them, is the only consistent thing for Moses to do. Who is he to curse someone whom God has blessed? And who are we? Who am I? It might great against our human instincts, but this is the merciful instinct of God to make a way to bless those who have cursed him, to make a way to do good to those who have hated him. So learn from Moses how to perceive other people more by their relationship with God than their relationship with you. Learn from Moses to see others through the eyes of God as much as that would ever be possible. Right? Only that can free you to use your last words, to use any of your words, to bless even those who have, who have cursed you. That's Moses' last address. Second, let's talk about the last ascent. With all the, the mountain climbing that Moses has done in his life, and he's done a lot of it, he's gone up and down a lot of mountains, it's fitting that his life will come to a close after one last ascent. Let me read the first nine verses of Deuteronomy chapter 34, and you can follow along with me. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea, the Negev, and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, 
but you shall not go over there. Verse five. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is God's word. We learn a couple things from Moses' last ascent up this mountain. First, that, that though 120 years old, he has remarkable physical health. This mountain is about 4,500 feet up, so it's not a 14er, but it's not bad if you're 120 years old. You can still climb a mountain like that. As verse 7 puts it, when Moses died, his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. So it would actually be a mistake for us to think that Moses died of natural old age causes. We don't know the exact how, but we know that, that God intentionally brought his life to an end in this moment as Israel was nearing the end of its 40 years in the wilderness. We also learn here that, that nobody knows exactly where Moses is buried. Somewhere in the land of Moab, that's, that's all we know. Scholars actually have different views on this, but the most natural translation of the original language actually makes it appear like Moses was buried by God himself, which never happened to anybody else. <laughs> Moses was buried, perhaps, by God himself. If his burial location were known, it almost certainly would have become an idol. It almost certainly would have become an object of worship. Some years later, during the period of the Judges, the people of God do the same thing with part of Gideon's clothes. They take Gideon's, one of the judges, one of their rescuers, they take his ephod and they worship it. They worship the hero instead of the God who empowered him. And so really for their own protection, God does not allow the people to know the place of Moses' burial. There's not going to be a shrine there. There's not going to be something that they can worship instead of worshiping God. Beyond all these details, though, there's an important takeaway for us in this last ascent, and it's this. That like Moses, our lives will end with both a sense of completion and incompletion. That our lives will end with a sense both that things are finished and unfinished. Moses has done exactly what God called him to do. So centuries before the Apostle Paul writes this, Moses can say with a straight face, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. And yet, at the end of Deuteronomy, there's a real sense of how unfinished things are. The people are still in Moab. They're not in the promised land. And Moses has led all of these people out of Egypt. He's led them now around the wilderness for these 40 years. But it's going to be another person that's going to lead them in. Our lives, your life, my life, will end with a sense of both completion and incompletion. There are incredible things for us to use our lives for. But even a life well lived, a life lived as faithfully and fully as possible for the glory of God and for the good of others will end with so many things unfinished and so much incomplete. That's simply part of, of being human. It's part of, of us being created and not being the creator. It's, it's part of what it means to be dependent on God and not to actually be God ourselves. The question for each of us is, 
Can I labor to live my life well and be content with whatever is incomplete and unresolved when it ends? Can I labor to live my life well and be content with whatever is incomplete and unresolved when it ends? See, for some of us, Moses' life and example is a call to the labor. It's a call to the work. Some of us need to actually apply ourselves to the immense amount of significant work that God has given you to do. And to live the kind of life where at the end of it, whenever that comes, however it comes, at the end of it, you can say with a straight face, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. For others of us, though, who are pursuing that kind of life, who are trying to live that kind of life, Moses' death is a call to remember how incomplete and unfinished things will still be. Right? If this is you, because this is me, I have to remind myself of this all the time. But one more heavy lift, one more season of sprinting, one more big push, and however many of those you can string together for the rest of your life, it doesn't matter how many of those you can do, it will never all get done. There will always be stuff unfinished and incomplete in your life. So friends, let's be people who work hard, but people who work humbly. A life well-lived at its end will feel both complete and incomplete. Third, let's talk about the last assessment. The last assessment. The final words of the book of Deuteronomy were not written by Moses. It was after his, his death. They were added at some point later on. They include what ends up being the last assessment of Moses' life. And really, whoever it was that wrote them, we don't know for sure. And whenever they were written, we also don't know that. But they are not merely a human assessment. This is God's assessment of Moses' life. Let me read it for us. It's verses 10 through 12 of Deuteronomy 34. And it says this. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is God's word. That's an, an amazing assessment of a life, is it not? Moses did not get to enter into the promised land, that's true, but he was known by God. He got to see, he got to talk with God, not see God, he got to talk with God face to face. Joshua, Moses' successor, he gets the joy, he gets that honor and privilege of leading the people into the land, but Joshua has to go through the high priest when he wants his direction from God. He has to go through a mediator. Moses got to speak directly with God as a man speaks to a friend. That's one of the ways Moses was unique. The other, according to this last assessment, is because of the mighty power that God worked through him performing these miracles in Egypt and then among the people in the wilderness. There are other, there will be more, supernatural miracles as the rest of Israel's history unfolds. But not with the frequency, and you could argue not with the potency of the miracles that God performed at the hand of Moses over and over again. All that to say, verse 10, there is not arisen another prophet like Moses. Three months ago, as we were uh, kicking off this series in September, I shared this quote about Moses' life by a man named D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody put it this way. He said, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody. He spent the second 40 years learning that he was a nobody. He spent the third 40 years of his life 
discovering what God can do with a nobody. It's a good and and memorable summary of Moses' life. 40 years in Egypt, he was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised as royalty. He was somebody. The next 40 years being humbled, living away from Egypt, out wandering in the wilderness, and then returning to Egypt and leading the people out for the last 40 years of his life. But D.L. Moody's summary isn't 100% accurate, is it? See, in, in some moments, Moses did think he was a somebody. In other moments, he felt like a nobody, and he certainly needed to learn the humility that came by feeling like a nobody. But in God's last assessment, Moses was neither a self-important somebody nor a forgotten nobody. In God's last assessment, Moses is a man intimately known and powerfully used by God. That's the assessment. He, he is a man intimately known and powerfully used by God. You see, infinitely more important than your last words, whatever those are someday, infinitely more important than what other people think of you, even more important than your own assessment of yourself is God's assessment of you. In any given moment, this is certainly true for me, and I'm imagining it's true for you too. In any given moment, we are horrible assessors of our own lives. We're horrible at assessing our own life in any given moment. Sometimes we overestimate ourselves. Like, man, good thing I'm here. My family or my workplace or my school or my church, it would just fall apart if I wasn't there. Thank God I'm here. Other times, maybe, maybe you don't do that. I do that, okay? Other times, we underestimate ourselves. Does my life matter at all? Like, if I, if I stopped doing the work that I'm doing, would anybody even notice? Would anybody even feel the loss of the effort and the energy and the time that I put into these things? But even in the rare moments where we might be assessing ourselves fairly accurately, your self-assessment means nothing compared to God's assessment of you. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes about the worthlessness of human assessments compared with God's. He says this, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, Paul writes, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. In other words, it is, it is not the assessment of other people which ultimately counts. Imagine if Moses valued the assessment of other people during the last 40 years of his life. Imagine how devastating it would be to have your value and your worth tied up in and dictated by a couple million incredibly fickle, whiny people like the Israelites, right? Pass, hard pass on that. That would be a terrible existence. But the people's assessment of Moses is not what matters, nor though is Moses' assessment of himself. See, like Paul, Moses can say, I am not aware of anything against myself. I've tried to live a faithful, upright life. I've tried to be faithful among the Israelites, even when they've been faithless. But my own self-assessment isn't what matters either. In the end, only God's assessment counts. And for us, church, that is incredibly hopeful news. That's incredibly hopeful news because God's assessment of you is through the lenses of his son, the greater deliverer, Jesus Christ. You are not somebody in and of yourself. And I hope I'm not shattering that for you for the first time this morning. But you are not somebody in and of yourself. You are a great sinner like me who deserves condemnation. But neither are you a nobody. You're an image bearer of God. 
You are one who is loved by the God of heaven and earth. And through the work of Jesus, like Moses, you are one who is known by God and one whom God desires to work powerfully in and powerfully through. That, men and women, is the only assessment of you that ultimately matters. So this morning, suspend whatever other assessments might be competing with that one. Let go of the, the harsh, the unfair words that were leveled against you, maybe even leveled against you this week. Let go of your, your, your own flawed self-assessment, the ways you've overestimated or underestimated yourself, maybe even in these last couple days, and trust God's assessment of you instead. You are known and you are loved and your life is a stage which gets to display the majesty of God. That is God's assessment. That is the only assessment that matters. Can you let go of all the other assessments? Can you trust that assessment today? One last thought here. This assessment of Moses in um, verses 10 through 12, it's not a sad, nostalgic kind of reflection. Right? This is not, whoever wrote this, this is not great-grandpa rocking on the porch, complaining about how much better the good old days were when Moses was around. That's not, what, that's not what's happening here. This assessment at the end of Deuteronomy, this assessment is anticipation. There has not since arisen a prophet like Moses yet. Not yet, but one is coming and these words at the end of this book are dripping in anticipation of it. Which leads to our final point this morning. So having considered the last address and the ascent and the last assessment, let's not miss the lasting assurance. Lasting assurance. We have to go back to the middle of Deuteronomy to chapter 18, a few pages back in your Bible. In the middle of this book, Moses, this prophet who was unlike any other in Israel, says these prophetic words. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then just a couple verses later, God himself says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is God's word. We've seen throughout this series, Moses' life and ministry is preparing the way for this greater prophet, this greater deliverer to be raised up among the people of God. Fast forward multiple centuries to the, to the first century, and it still hasn't happened. It still hasn't happened, but the people are still anticipating. They're still looking for this prophet that Moses promised would come. They're watching and waiting. The Gospel of John records multiple instances of people asking John the Baptist, is it you? Are you the prophet? And John, of course, is not the prophet, but then Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And in the middle of it, like Moses, he ascends a mountain, a mountain that we now know as the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, three of his apostles, join him. And there, on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, they see a glimpse of the glorified Jesus. The gospel writers record that in that moment, two other people appear with Jesus. One of them is Elijah. Who's the other one? Moses. Moses. Moses and Elijah and Jesus, they begin to discuss and talk with each other about Jesus' departure, the gospel writers record. But that word in the original language, that word for departure, is actually the word exodus. You see, Jesus is not preparing simply to say goodbye 
He's preparing to lead the people of God out of slavery. He's preparing to trample down the power of sin and death that has enslaved humanity since the fall. He's about to bring us out forever. That's the second exodus. That's the greater exodus. Jesus is this prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18. He is the greater Moses who leads the people out of their slavery to sin. After Jesus dies and then rises from the dead, after he ascends back into heaven, this is the consistent witness of the apostles and the church. In Acts chapter 3, Peter, the apostle Peter, quotes Deuteronomy 18 in his sermon, and he says, that prophet that Moses assured us was coming, it's Jesus. A few chapters later in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is on trial for his life. He retells the story of Moses, and he quotes again Deuteronomy 18, and he says, that prophet that Moses assured us was coming, he has come. It's Jesus. And so as we reach the end of this series, as we reach the end of Moses' life, what is the destiny of the people of God? Where is it going to go from here? To a greater exodus. To a greater exodus. And church, this greater exodus has been accomplished by the greater prophet and deliverer, Jesus Christ. As we kick off our celebration of Advent this week, just even in these next few days, let's do so with renewed appreciation for the watching and the waiting the people of God did. Advent means coming or arrival. And for all of these days between the death of Moses and the birth of Jesus, the people of God were awaiting this future prophet, this one Moses promised would be raised up after him. You and I have been delivered by that prophet. And yet, we do our own watching and waiting. We watch and we wait for his return. See, what Deuteronomy 18 was for Israel, Acts chapter 1 verse 11 is for us. As Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, ascends back up to the right hand of the Father in heaven, the angels tell the onlooking apostles, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Just as sure, in other words, as this greater prophet has come, he will come again. And that is our lasting assurance as the people of God. The people of God, up to the arrival of Jesus, had that assurance that another prophet was going to be raised up, and he came. God, just as God was faithful to bring about the first advent, he will be faithful to bring the second. So until that day, friends, perceive other people more by their relationship with God than their relationship with you. Be free to bless those, even those who have cursed you. Until that day, labor to live your life well, all while being content that so much will remain incomplete and unfinished when your life comes to its end. Until that day, trust God's assessment of you more than any other assessment, especially your own assessment of yourself. And until that day, may you cling to the lasting assurance that is yours in Jesus Christ. Truly, the greater exodus has come in Christ. And Christ will come again. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty and merciful God, the one who brought Jesus into the world the first time, you will surely bring him again. And we await that day and we anticipate and long for that day that you will come again, Jesus, and you will make all things new. Would you grant to us today the grace to live faithfully as your people for as many days as it takes until you come? May we watch and wait as the people of God did for centuries until your first advent. 
Would you teach us so many things from Moses' life, from following in his example? May we learn so much about the way his life comes to its close. But may, more than anything else, may the life of Moses fix our eyes on Jesus and long for the day that he will come again. We pray that all in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.